Thank you, Father, for the privilege that I have to teach, to open your word and to learn and to share what I have found with others. I thank you, Father, that you've given me the privilege to do that. I thank you, Father, that I'm shared, uh, this room is shared with others who have a desire to hear it. We thank you, Father, for a nation in which the opportunity to learn and to share your word is freely available. I thank you, Father, for leaders, men and women in this church, who support that mission, both by their presence in this church, by their active participation, through their funds, their prayers, through their desire. I thank you, Father, you've put us in a city that needs this product, that needs your word so badly. Father, there aren't many places in this part of the country that are more estranged from you than the city that surrounds us. And so where better, Father, to be a light? Where better to bring your word? Father, all that stands between us and each person in this city knowing you and hearing the word, Father, it's, it's simply a matter of you opening hearts and allowing us an opportunity to be your vessel. But it does ask that we would be available to you, Father, that we would put that as our priority as well. So I pray, Father, that as we hear about a people in a time long ago in which people who you had called had spurned your call, I pray, Father, that you would not let us fall in that same way, that we would not be a people who have heard the word but failed to do as you have called us to do. So I look forward, Father, to how you will put to work what we're learning. And I encourage, uh, I would ask you to encourage our hearts, Father, to put it into action. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to talk about high places. And no, I don't mean the, the heydays of your 1960s years. High places. That's what we're talking about today is high places. And we'll define that term here in a few minutes as we go into the text. But this is a story or this is a lesson on how God judges the high places of Israel as a result of their sin. We've been looking at this now for a time. God judging Israel for their sin at a certain time in history as a result of their failure to keep the Old Covenant. And in the chapters we're involved in now, 5, 6, and 7, we're at the point where God is talking in detail about what will transpire as a result of of this coming judgment. In chapter 6, we're now moving forward in that study of consequences, looking at how he judges the land of Israel proper, the land of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, but with respect to the high places in these parts of Israel. Last week in chapter 5, the Lord explained the consequences that would come against the people in the city. So last week it was the people, and when we looked at that last week, we heard that there would be a dividing of the people of Israel, that two-thirds of the people of Israel would die in the coming siege, the final siege of Jerusalem. But a third would be scattered, would be exiled. And from among all three of these groups, God would pluck out a small number of Jews, a remnant, he calls them, that is, the believing of Israel. And though they would experience these earthly judgments along with their countrymen, they would be preserved through the judgments, God promised, because of his faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, if all of that background is a bit foreign to you, that's a good indication that you might want to go back and listen to last week's message. But today we're moving on. So if last week was God talking about how the people are going to be affected by this coming judgment, now he looks at the land, and as I said, specifically the high places of idolatry that Israel had set up in their land. We'll start in chapter 6, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them, and say, Mountains of Israel, listen to the word of the Lord God. 
Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys. Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you, and I will destroy your high places. So your altars will become desolate, and your incense altars will be smashed. And I will make your slain fall in front of your idols. I will also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. In all your dwellings, cities will become waste, and the high places will be desolate, that your altars may become waste and desolate. Your idols may be broken and brought to an end. Your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be blotted out. The slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel is done with his charades. We saw God asking Ezekiel to perform certain charades to make a point. Now he's done with all that. Now he's just speaking what the Lord has asked him to speak. But he's still going to deliver his message with a little bit of flair. I like that about Ezekiel, the way God uses him. He's always got a little bit of extra. And in this case, what he's asked to do is turn and face Israel from where they were currently in Babylon. And in the facing toward Israel, he is prophesying, as it were, against the mountains, God says, against the land, the geography. Now, clearly the Lord is not angry against the land itself. This is not an issue with the land failing to do what it's told. He's using the idea of speaking against the land as a way of symbolizing or representing how Israel used their land, how they created high places across the land of Israel. Now, a high place was any location of Canaanite idol worship, and particularly if it included an altar for sacrifice. That was a high place. Now, when Israel entered the promised land under Joshua, this is after the time of Moses, after the desert wanderings, When God finally permitted that new generation of Israel to come into the land under Joshua, they found a land that was well-suited for them. It was flowing with milk and honey, as the phrase goes, but it was also occupied. It was occupied by a group of people that God had judged as worthy of destruction and that Israel would be that instrument for their destruction. The Lord even told Abraham centuries earlier that this would happen that a day would come when Abraham's descendants, who didn't even exist at the time, would one day receive the land that was currently owned by Canaanites, and that God had appointed that Israel was to receive Canaanite land. He said to Abraham that that day would come when the Lord's patience over the Canaanites' sin had reached its limit. This is what he says specifically in Genesis 15. 15.12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenanite and the Kenizzite and the Cabanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Raphaim, and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. In that passage in Genesis, this is what we learned. God tells Abram, Abraham that in the fourth generation of his descendants, yet to come, they would come into the land where Abraham was currently standing, which was Canaan at the time, 
And they would take possession of that land. And they would displace and they would destroy those who currently occupied it. That list of ites, Jebusite, Canaanite, Kenizzite, all of those ites, they are all going to be displaced from that land because God says their sin, their iniquity will be complete at a certain point. And when they have sinned to the limits I'm allowing, I will displace them from the land. Now in the years that followed, as that nation moved into the land under Joshua, they failed to do as God asked them to do in displacing all of those people. They did it for a while under Joshua, and then when Joshua was at the end of his life, he told the nation of Israel, Now, go into your appointed areas, each tribe, and continue the conquest that we have begun. And of course, what they did was they went in, got comfortable, decided they'd rather just make peace with some of these people and get along with them, and they cohabitated. They ended up living side by side with the Canaanite peoples in the land. As a result, the nation found itself living side by side with idolatry. Now, what do you think happens when you do that? There's a principle that Scripture gives us about this. Summing it up, we could say it this way. When we associate closely with the world, we don't make them better. They make us worse. We are in the world to influence them, but when we associate too closely with them, we don't help our cause. We actually hurt our cause which is exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. Over the time that they spent in the land, living next to Canaanites, the nation of Israel adopted Canaanite idolatry. That's the record that we have in Scripture from Judges going all the way up until the end of the kings, until the period of where we are now in Ezekiel. The nation of Israel substituted idol worship for the worship of the true God of Israel. And later when you see the kings come along, you have evil kings both in the north and in the south who not only permitted Israel to engage in idolatry, they actually instituted idolatry as the official religion of the people of Israel. They would go and set up their own high places, their own temples, create their own priests, and do all the things that God asked them not to do for the people. And in that way, Judah incorporated idol worship into the very landscape of Israel. The two became inseparable. On every hill, on every mountaintop, any notable part of Israel's geography, on ravines, by rivers, in valleys, under tall trees, you could find altars devoted to false gods. They dotted the landscape of Israel which is sometimes hard for us to see that because we think of Jews, particularly today, those who are religious, as being so zealous for what God gave them that it's hard to imagine they would ever run off after false gods. But you're thinking about the Israel of today. You're not thinking about the Israel of this day, of times around and before Ezekiel. Now, there's an interesting element to this story or to this history that I haven't given you yet. In the beginning, these high places that I'm talking about were not originally centers of idol worship. That's not how they began. They were actually centers of Yahweh worship, the true God of Israel being worshipped. It started with the tribe of Dan. Remember when we studied in the book of Judges, we learned that there was a moment in which the tribe of Dan decided they didn't like the land that they had been given near the Philistine plain. They got tired of always being attacked by the Philistines, and they did not take up the challenge that God gave them to defeat the Philistines. They didn't have the faith to believe that they could defeat the Philistines. So rather than prosecute the fight God asked them to prosecute, what did they do? They picked up stakes, and they went north. And they found land up near Naphtali in the far northern edge of what is current-day Israel and decided that was a better place to live than the place God had assigned to them further south. As they did that, remember they picked up that priest from Ephraim and said, hey, come with us. We need you to be our priest. 
Why did they want a priest to go with them? Because as Dan migrated that far north, they moved so far away from Jerusalem that the yearly requirement for attending certain religious observances in Jerusalem was so onerous that they thought, rather than walk all the way back down to Jerusalem when we're supposed to and do the worship that God has asked of us there, why don't we just build our own temple and our own altar and we'll do our own service up here in the north. We'll be like another campus. We'll be like the northern campus of God's temple and we'll just do our own worship up here it was not worship of a false god it was worship of the same god they just did it up there you can still see ruins of that temple today they are now doing something that they cannot do according to the law they have set up graven images and they have set up an inappropriate unauthorized place for worship and over the centuries this idea caught on throughout israel Jews who preferred not to make the long journey back to the tabernacle as required by law, they just said, well, we'll set up our own high place right here. And soon you had these high places everywhere. Jews practicing a false version of Yahweh worship. False because it's not according to the law. But then you see where this goes eventually, right? Over time, they began to change the worship practices. Because after all, if you change what the law says about where you go for your worship, then it's a small new step to say, well, let's change some of the practices themselves. You see the slippery slope that develops over history, right? Having already set aside the law in one place, they set aside it in other places. And in time, to cut to the chase, they adopted pagan gods, pagan rituals, Canaanite worship practices, and they took those from whatever they saw in the people living around them. So now you have altars, high places, dedicated to Moloch, or to Baal, or to other pagan gods. You have Jews who have signed up to be priests for these false gods. They have prostitutes set up inside new temples that they've built, because Canaanite worship often involves sexual promiscuity. You have sacrifices taking place on these altars that are no longer just animals. Now they're sacrificing infants, which was the requirement under Baal worship. And then within a few years, or a few generations... The nation's religious practice was indistinguishable from that of the surrounding nations. You see how it starts so simply? We want to do the right thing, we just want to do it more conveniently. Next thing you know, it's an entirely different worship. If you read through Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, you'll see idolatry progressing over about a 500-year period in the way that I just summarized. Under Solomon's rule, the high places first gained legitimacy. He allowed them because he married pagan wives who wanted them. Then later, when the kingdom split, you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the kings of these two kingdoms embraced that worship, and they instituted it as a national practice. Once in a while, a good king would rise up and put an end to all of that, and he might even tear down some of the high places, kings like Hezekiah, kings like Josiah. But in time, their reforms would be forgotten. Another generation would rise up. They'd say, hey, here's a high place, let's just use this, and here we go again. And it wouldn't be long before all the the bad stuff has started. It's hard to believe how pervasive idolatry could be in Israel, especially when you remember how that nation came into being in the first place, how they even walked into the land in the first place. Remember how all that happened? God revealing himself to them in miraculous ways. He has miracle after miracle to get them out of Egypt. He has the parting of the Red Sea, the Charlton Heston movie, right there in the middle of that event. You can't forget that. He has Joshua knocking down walls by blowing trumpets. 
He has the judges doing miraculous things. He has the law reminding them of all of this. He has the feasts every year which commemorate all of these events. They're constantly being reminded of how powerful and faithful God is. And under Solomon, he made them the most powerful nation on the earth. They were literally the only superpower on earth in their day. And that's when idolatry fully took hold. How do you get that far from God? They say the math doesn't work, does it? Remember how it started in the way I described? How did that idolatry trip start? It started when Dan physically moved away from the Lord. And that's not just a coincidence. They left his presence. They left his word. They began to listen to the world's counsel. They began to listen to their own selfish, evil heart. And the pattern has never changed, friends. It's always been this way. If someone feels far from God, it's not because God moved. God doesn't change. It's because they did. If you've moved away from God, that is, if you have stopped spending time with God's people in a regular way, or if you have moved away from a regular study of His Word or growth in that process, well, you get to the point where you feel like you don't know who God is anymore or where He is or why He matters, and your life is absorbed in other things. That's the nature of the problem. And you'll tell yourself, well, church is for other people. The Bible has no relevance for me anymore. Why doesn't someone talk about something practical in my life? Those are indications. Those are the canary in the coal mine to tell you that something is seriously wrong with your appreciation of God. Idolatry is a very seductive thing. It draws you in quietly. And you rarely see it coming. High places in Israel didn't begin as a place where we worship a different God. They began as a place where we can worship the same God. The Jews who built those places wanted to worship Yahweh. They wanted to worship on their own terms, though. I doubt Dan, the tribe of Dan, I doubt they understood where they were headed when they made that decision to travel north. Spiritually, that is, where they were headed. I doubt they saw the danger in setting up their own temple at first. It must have made perfect sense. That's the part that's problematic. That one little compromise gave the enemy the wedge he needed to put himself between them and the God they said they wanted to serve. Each step they took moved them further from the Word of God, and it made the next step that much easier. When I see someone whose walk departs from the Lord and gets really far away over time, when you look back on how that took place, it almost always starts under the same circumstances. It's rare to me that a Christian will move from a faithful walk with Christ on one day to complete rebellion and apostasy the next. That's a very rare occurrence. In fact, I would argue that if you ever see that pattern, you're more likely looking at an unbeliever. They never knew Christ. Then you are looking at someone who really knows the Lord and snaps. That, that to me is never the way it works. The way it works is a slow progression, starting with moving away, and then forgetting, and then substituting, and then one day you wake up and that person has a life that doesn't resemble anything like where they started with God. And if that person goes far enough, they may reach the point where they bottom out. Whatever they've been chasing isn't doing it for them anymore, and their desperation has left them ready to reconsider how they got to where they are. You may hear them asking themselves questions like, when's the last time I went to church? Or when's the last time I prayed? Or when's the last time I opened my Bible? Or why am I spending so much time in the company of ungodly people? Why am I filling my day with so many worldly pursuits? How did my life get so messed up? Where are you, Lord? You may never have thought about those things as idolatry, The Hebrew word for idol, you may find this humorous, the Hebrew word that we have translated as idol, it literally translates out of the Hebrew as a dung god. A dung god. 
That's what we're actually talking about here. The waste products of our consumption, they are our high places. The things we consume, whatever that might be, the lustful appetites that we indulge, those become our masters. Those become our gods. And we begin to serve those dung gods at our high places in life, forgetting that that's a substitute, not recognizing it. You don't have to bow your knee to a wooden statue to be guilty of idolatry. You just have to set up a high place. You just have to set up something in your life that substitutes for obedience and devotion to God. Remember, the original high places in Israel were not idol-worshipping locations. They were God-worshipping locations. But the important difference is they were on their terms, not God's terms. When we establish our own ways for finding satisfaction or protection or provision, rather than relying on the Lord and in His Word, we have set up a high place in our life. I'm using it metaphorically, you understand that, but it has the same effect in our hearts spiritually. We begin to rely on it. Now you might be hearing all this and be thinking to yourself, boy, there are some people out there that are really messed up. I'm glad I'm not one of them. Maybe that's true. But you should ask the question, do I have a high place in my life? Ask yourself, where do you turn when you feel vulnerable? When you feel empty? When you're feeling hurting? Where do you go? What is the first thing you turn to? If that isn't a prayer closet, or the Word of God, or the fellowship of God's people, well then, friends, you've discovered your high place. That thing, or that place, or that person that you go to when you have these needs, and it's the first thought in your mind, that place needs to be taken down because it stands between you and a maturing walk with Christ. You know, Israel didn't want to remove their high places in their day. And they didn't want to do it because they had hard, unbelieving hearts. High places were a consistent feature of the land. And so they stood there generation after generation to condemn the people. And so now, back to the text, the Lord declares through Ezekiel, the time has finally come for these high places to be removed. But this time, the Lord says, I'm going to remove them. And he says, I'm going to bring a sword against them. And what he's referring to, of course, is the Babylonian army, who is the instrument in his hand to accomplish this task. So that historically, we know as Israel was conquered for the third time, as the city of Jerusalem was conquered the third time by the Babylonians, they had to move from north to south through the length of the land to get to Jerusalem. Keeping in mind, this is the third time the Babylonians have had to do this now. And they're not very happy about that. So now as they move through Israel, it was a scorched earth policy. The Babylonians, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, had decided that he wasn't going to have a fourth time. That instead of leaving Israel in the land, he was going to remove them entirely from the land this time. There'd be no need to go back. And so he literally destroyed every inhabitable settlement. Any person he encountered, he killed them or he made them a slave. And as he moved through the land, the army would come upon Jews who were worshipping at their various high places. It makes sense. As you have an army approaching you, you're going to go pray to your God for protection, right? So it was a very common thing for them to encounter Jews at the high places as they moved through the land. As they engaged with these groups in battle, what we're hearing from Ezekiel is that the Lord would give his people over to the Babylonians. The Babylonian army would have their opportunity. He would let them win tearing down every single altar, killing every single worshiper, and the dead being left unburied around their altars where they once worshipped. Think about what that scene tells you when it's over. It's a bitter irony. The Israel that worshipped these idols expected the favor of these gods. 
They expected their idols to grant them fertility and abundant crops and protection from their enemies. And instead of that outcome, you have both the idols themselves and their worshipers experiencing the same fate of destruction. So these so-called gods couldn't even save themselves, much less the people who entrusted their lives to them. That's the irony. Historically, this whole event that we're now learning about was a turning point for Israel. In the past, remember I said that they'd have a good king that would rise up once in a while. He'd look at the problem of the land. He'd say, we can't have this going on. And he'd put an end to idol worship and he'd get rid of high places, at least for a time. But as I mentioned, those reforms never lasted. Another generation later, you had them all back again. This time, after the Babylonians' conquest of Judah and Jerusalem the third time, historically, Israel never again returned to idol worship. Wherever the Jews have existed, whether in the land again or outside the land in other nations, they have remained true to the law of Moses. Never again did you see high places set up in the land of Israel. Never again has the nation of Israel ever embraced idolatry. Even today, among those Jews who are religious-minded, they are faithful to the law, to their rabbi's teaching, and to the historic teaching of Judaism, and they reject idolatry. Now, that's a remarkable departure from their history. Think about it. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel ran back to idolatry and high places. And then, after this moment, they've never done it again. Why has the nation never fallen back into idolatry like it did so many times before? That's a really good question. That's a a question that academics study. Well, you don't have to study very hard because the Lord gives you the answer in the rest of the chapter. Read verses 8 through 14. He says, However, I will leave a remnant... For you will have those who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hand, stamp your foot, and say, Alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, which will fall by sword, famine, and plague. He who is far off will die by the plague, and he who is near will fall by the sword, and he who remains and is besieged will die by the famine. Thus will I spend my wrath on them. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When their slain are among their idols around their altars, on every high hill, on all the tops of the mountains, under every green tree and under every leafy oak, the places where they offered soothing aroma to all their idols. So throughout all their habitations, I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land more desolate and waste than the wilderness toward Dibla. Thus they will know that I am the Lord. So in verse 8, the Lord mentions the remnant. Again, we studied this last week. That should remind you of last week's teaching that out of those that God was going to bring this judgment to in in the city of Jerusalem and in the land of Judah, He would allow some in the nation of Israel to be preserved through the judgments. And within those that are preserved, within that third that are going to stay alive, there would be an even smaller group who would be believing, faithful Jews who were caught up in these judgments but would be preserved through them. And now we're understanding... What is the good purpose that God has in all that He said He's going to do? Here you're finding it right now. The Lord says in verse 9, Those who survive and are scattered are going to be allowed to live 
for the very purpose of testifying to this experience. This remnant of believing Jews would understand that it was their ancestors' idolatry that grieved the Lord's heart and did so to such a degree that these terrible things were justified. Therefore, the nation of Israel that goes into exile is not going to sit around saying, why did our God do this to us? What they're going to sit around saying is, look what we did to ourselves in forcing God's hand. And he says they will come to loathe their sins and abominations and in that way to repent from them. And that because of this powerful experience, he says the remnant of Israel would remember the Lord among the nations. When the Bible says to remember the Lord, it means that the Jewish people would remain faithful to the Lord wherever they live. To remember Him is not merely to have recollection of Him. It means to observe the law, to celebrate the feasts, to observe the weekly Sabbath, to do all those things as they're expected wherever they go in the world so that they are a living testimony of the Lord. In that sense, they are remembering Him before the people. But notice in verse 10, the Lord adds, These disasters wouldn't come upon Israel in vain. That's an important phrase. What he's saying is this, These terrible events will accomplish a lasting good for the sake of the people of Israel. They won't come... Make a point, and then the point be lost in the end. That would be in vain. No, they're not going to be in vain. First, he says, they're going to recognize that these things were brought upon themselves because of their own sin. Verse 11. More importantly, he says, it's going to lead them to know that I am Lord. That is, to know that there's only one true God. In fact, notice that phrase, then they will know that I am the Lord. It appears three times in this passage, verse 10, verse 13, verse 14. In fact, that phrase appears 65 times in the book of Ezekiel. That's really the main point. The main point is, you guys are in the big trouble that you're in because you have walked away from me. I'm going to bring big trouble on you so that you will never do this again. The nation had walked away, so they needed to know the Lord was the only God. And he uses these one-of-a-kind judgments, and he leaves an indelible impression on the people. And it worked. The Lord says, He will take Israel and make them die on every high place, and in the process of this example being set, from that point forward, the nation will never come back to that same sin again. The magnitude of that disaster would make sure that future generations never make the same mistake. It worked. History records that it worked. But boy, what a hard way to learn a lesson. Wouldn't you agree? We're starting to understand a little bit now about why God's judgment in this time of history was so harsh. They sinned against their God in the worst possible way, and they didn't just do it once, they did it repeatedly for the better part of 500 years until the Lord had no choice but to act in such a way that He would correct the problem. If you want to understand what was on the line in doing this, think about the history of Israel after this moment. They go out into captivity. Now they're so far away from what they knew in their own land that the possibility of idol worship becomes that much greater when they're living in the land of Babylon. But they come out of the land of Babylon much as they did out of the land of Egypt with a solid appreciation for the God of Israel, for their law. The idea that we should care about the writing of God's law and that we should care about memorizing it and studying it, that was all out of the Babylonian captivity that those thoughts and cultures of Israel began. The old idea of a scribe, of those who were lawyers, that started in Babylon, the first one being Ezra. So that by the time Christ arrived, not many centuries later, He came into a land in which, though it was occupied by the Romans, the people of Israel were very zealous for the law, very zealous for their Jewish identity, very intolerant 
of idol worship. You may remember a story I told a few weeks back about how the Jewish practice of Hanukkah got started. It celebrates the Maccabean Revolt uh, around 150 B.C. That revolt started, if you remember, because there was a family of Jews who were being forced to sacrifice to an idol, and they refused to do it. And another Jew, an apostate Jew, decided to come up and do it on their behalf, And that incensed the Maccabean family so much that the father killed the Jew who was trying to sacrifice in the wrong way. That's how zealous they were. And it started a revolt and created an opportunity for Israel to to reassert itself in the land. God is acting here to preserve his people from annihilation. Not the annihilation he's bringing on them. It's literally the opposite. God's judgment upon his people is going to create a remnant that would be preserved from annihilating itself. Because I assure you, had this been allowed to go unchecked, it wouldn't have been that long before Israel wasn't Israel anymore. If God had not taken this drastic action, instead of a third of Israel remaining, you'd have none remaining. There'd have been no people left in the land who knew God, who followed Him. They'd just be Canaanites. Yeah, this is a really hard way to learn to be faithful to God. But Israel learned it. They have not gone back to idol worship. Now you and I, we live under a different covenant. We have the new covenant, which Israel is also promised to receive in a day to come. But for now, we have it. And in this new covenant, we live under grace. And so as we think about what our relationship with God is now, by the covenant of Christ's blood, we're tempted, I think, to assume that, well, God can never do this to us. That is to say, if we wandered, we wouldn't be in any jeopardy, not like this. But be careful what you assume, because the New Testament does not give us room to wiggle. In fact, the Word of God tells us that since we have an even greater covenant by which we know the Lord, greater than the old covenant, that is, then with that comes an even greater obligation to live obediently, to follow that Lord, not to have high places, in other words. Hebrews 10.23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. We studied Hebrews here even further back, years ago now. And in this passage, we learned that the writer, speaking to his Christian audience, is saying, Hold fast to your confession. That's another way of saying, stay near to the Lord. Don't go wandering after high places. But he says, if we should waver, that is, if we waver in our pursuit of Christ, just as the Israelites wavered in their following of God, he says, you can expect the Lord to respond. He's not going to sit by idly forever. That is an expectation we should have. The writer then goes on to ask, if failing to observe the old covenant resulted in the penalty of physical death for those who did so, Well then, let's consider what would follow for the apostate New Covenant Christian. What would we think God might do against us? He doesn't answer the question here, by the way. If you notice, he never gives you the answer. He leaves it rhetorical. I think he does that because he wants us to think about it. Maybe because he doesn't really know. 
Or maybe it's just because we ought to be so concerned that we never test the question. Right? If those who violated a lesser covenant receive such a severe penalty, well then we shouldn't be playing around here. Right? We are in a blood covenant with the Creator God, and that relationship will bring unfathomable blessings for us, both now and especially in the kingdom to come. But by the same token, it also brings an obligation to live in the light of what we've received. So the question becomes, how do we meet that obligation? And the writer says very simply, just start doing the very things that Israel neglected to do. That is to say, stay close to the Lord. Stay close to His people. Stay close to the Word of God. It says, serve Him in good deeds and in love. Don't be drawn away. I remember, high places are seductive. They don't typically come in the form of an idol in front of an altar with candles around it. I mean, that's the the worst of it. More likely for us in our culture, it comes in these attractive ways in which we can seek support for those emotional or financial or other needs in our life. And we seek those things because they're readily available. We're living around it. It's near bias. It's an easy temptation. But as we learn to turn to those things, we are inevitably turning less to the Lord in the things He's provided for us. Let's take that lesson and let's make sure we thought about it this week as we go about our way. We'll come back next week into chapter 7 and look at how he judges the final of the three parts, the prosperity of Israel. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, if we have high places in our life, if there are things in our life, Father, that have drawn us away from you, we turn those things over to you now in our hearts. We put them before you. We say, Father, tear them down. Even as part of our heart might long to keep them, we just ask, Father, that based on the counsel of your word, that you would remove them. You did that in a harsh way for Israel because, Father, they gave you no other options. We come to you now, Father, seeking a better way. That you might take the desires out of our heart, you might take the negative influences out of our life, whether that's the, the people who deceive us, the schedules or routines, Father, that consume us, the desires that distract us, whatever it is, Father. Be as you were for Israel, Father. Be our, be our rescue from ourselves, Father. Take our way, our high places, and set our minds back on seeking you. Not in a pious, self-serving way, not in some superficial, visual way, Father, but in a heartfelt way. That who we are and what we think and where we go when we have a need, Father, is always with you at the center. We pray for that heart. Help us with those around us, Father, who need our support in that way, and let them support us. Let us be men and women of God, Father, who have destroyed high places and put you alone in our heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.